0: from PRX.
1: Today on Studio 360, it's the 50th anniversary of Woodstock, so we'll consider the quintessential Woodstock act, Jimi Hendrix, as well as the totally, crazily, uncountercultural act that somehow made it to Woodstock, too.
2: Yip, 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 yep.
3: Well, as somebody put it once, Shanana showed us where we had come from, and Jimmy showed us
1: where we were going. One of Shanana's founders. This week on Studio 360, we are Stardust. We are golden. We feel old right after this. Studio 360. I'm Kurt Anderson and I'm sitting on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. This, this first level of garden. This is writing. Thomas Jefferson's Vegetable Garden. I'd like to have the roasted chicken piece. Very well done.
4: Editing is all about timing. I try to get a little bit away from the actual subject. You must get sick of your own voice, right?
5: Studio 360.
4: It's Kurt Anderson.
6: I'm getting out of show on in about five minutes.
1: The Woodstock Festival happened 50 years ago. The weekend of August 15th, 1969. So this week, we're looking at that historic weekend with all its sex and drugs.
7: Now, people have been saying that
0: some of the acid is poison. It's not poison. It's just bad acid. It's manufactured.
1: But focusing mainly on the rock and roll. People started calling baby boomers the Woodstock generation almost as soon as it happened. But like other people who weren't there, my knowledge of Woodstock comes almost entirely from the documentary that came out the following year, 1970. At 15, I devoured it. Crosby, Stills, and Nash, Sly Stone, even Joe Cocker, and definitely The Who. Teenage me loved every bit of it. Although there were a few minutes in the movie that surprised me. It was a cover of the 1957 Danny and the Junior song At the Hop by some group called Shanana. The band is wearing leather jackets and the singers are in shiny gold suits doing choreographed high stepping. Nobody has long hair. What was this jokey cornball novelty act doing at Woodstock? What did this have to do with peace, love, revolution, the age of Aquarius? Who were these guys?
3: So we were 11 undergraduates from Columbia. And we had uh, drums, you know, rhythm, bass, and lead. And then the rest of us.
1: Robert Leonard was a founder of Na Na, but just a few months before Woodstock, in the spring of 1969, his group in New York City went by a different name, the Columbia Kingsmen.
7: Roar, lion, roar, and wake the echoes of the Hudson Valley.
3: We were a, what was called a small college singing group. Nowadays, it would be an a cappella group. Well, one of the guy's fathers got us an audition with a record company. Now, we didn't have a big set list, so what we all liked to do in our spare time was to sing doo-wop songs that our older brothers uh, had introduced us to. So we said, why don't we sing some of those songs?
7: Please wait for me.
1: The record company audition was a bust, but the Kingsman's doo-wop performances were popular around Columbia's campus, and Rob's older brother, George Leonard, noticed.
0: I was getting my Ph.D. at Columbia. Basically, I was a novelist who had developed writer's
3: block. I was just looking for something to do because I couldn't write anymore. And George said to me, call the boys to your apartment. I want to talk to them. I called everybody to my apartment, and George came. And George, all 23 years old, right? Older than the rest of you. Exactly, yes, yes. But still, he looked at us all, and he pointed right in our faces, to each of us, and he said, Boys, I'm going to make you rock and roll stars.
0: Because
1: lovers never say goodbye. So it was your idea, Big Brother, George?
0: Yeah, I created it. The Columbia Acapella Group had the use of walman Auditorium for a show. There was this one solid month before
3: the show was going to go on. And George said, now we're going to do costumes. Instead of wearing uh, blazers, now we were like hoods, like juvenile delinquents, like what was later called greasers. Uh, in, you know, pegged pants and uh, tight T-shirts with cigarettes rolled up in the sleeve and greased back hair. I I named the concert
0: The Glory That Was Grease.
1: And, And this is three years before the musical Grease was on Broadway and before 50s pop nostalgia was even a thing.
3: Yeah, yeah. And three of us, George said, I need three guys who won't mind working hard and can dance. So three of us Dressed in uh, golem A outfits a la Elvis Presley that George found uh, in a defunct Bye Bye Birdie road show. So
1: it's 1969, you're, you know, a year earlier uh, on the Columbia campus had been like the most famous student protest of that time, like one of the big ones.
5: We have taken the power away from an irresponsible
7: and illegitimate administration. We are demanding that students and faculty. Have a say in the policies of the university.
0: The Columbia riots had been a ghastly experience. I think we ought to make clear, really, that it wasn't like all the students went into the buildings. Sure. The campus was violently divided. There were fistfights, there were battles. It was jocks versus SDS.
1: Students for a Democratic Society, the 60s left student group.
4: About 500 people joined us at the sundial. We were opposed by about 200 jocks there blocking our way.
0: I mean, it was like the Civil War, only on campus, where people who had been pals and worn beanies together in freshman year were now really beating each other up on site. I nah was supposed to be the opposite of that. And I had an idea that what could bring people together would be... Well, here, this is what my publicity said. I wrote up these handouts publicizing the show and uh, it said jocks, freaks, ROTC, SDS, hippies, let there be a truce. Remember when we were all little grease balls together? And I wrote, so you're a sophisticated college guy, huh? Bullshit. You know who you are, grease ball. Deep down inside you somewhere, there's still the same greasy kid standing on the corner in his continental jeans, watching the eighth-grade girls singing Duke of Earl to himself, for one glorious night, come to hear the Columbia Kingsmen sing the songs of your youth, grease your hair back with KY, roll up the sleeves on your T-shirt, come as you were. And they actually... Did it Really? The left, the right, the people that had been fighting each other, it was beautiful. Wow. The left-wingers went to the right-wing fraternities afterwards and danced until morning. It was amazing.
1: That's interesting, because I would imagine the passionate left-wingers saying, no, you, 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 you counter-revolutionary jerks, get away from me.
3: Not if you're in costume.
1: Yeah, so yeah. the costumes help?
3: Well, yeah, and I remember one time we were rehearsing, and... I overheard a couple of SDS guys saying, come on, come on, uh, this is the revolution, come on, the revolution won't wait. And his friend saying, yeah, it will, come on, let's just watch this. That sounds like a terrible, (laughs) unbelievable scene in a movie. (laughs) I know, I know. Well, so much of the reality is. Yes, indeed. But we were a vaudeville act, we were a music hall act. I mean, intricate choreography, this highly stylized thing, George choreographed every right. Uh, emotion, every hand movement, you name it. Everybody had his own persona. I performed death songs. That's what George assigned to me.
1: Death songs?
3: Yes. Uh, teen Angel. Oh, right. Uh, tell Laura I love her. He dies in a uh, car crash trying to uh, get her a diamond ring. Right.
1: There was a lot of that going around. There was a lot Dead of that Man's going around.
3: Man's Curve. Exactly.
1: And and at the time, was it campy? Are you? Is there a sense of parody in your intention?
3: I mean, we took these things seriously. We said, this is a, a script, this is a scene, and we're going to play it straight. And at Teen Angel, just sweet 16, and now you're gone. Just
8: sweet 16,
7: and now you're gone. 16, now you're gone.
3: Then I cried. <laughs> And the crowds would just go crazy. So, I mean, there's a certain... mm, Unseriousness, because the plots are so absurd. So there's tongue-in-cheek. Yes, let's put it that way. That's good. Yeah, Rather than parody, which sort of... We're looking down on it. I finished with Teen Angel one night in The Scene, in Hell's Kitchen. That's Club. That was the name of the club. Answer me, please. And I'm on my knees and crying. And I look up, and... Six feet away, there's Jimi Hendrix standing on a chair, jumping up and down. And, yeah, yeah. I said, oh my God, Lord, take me now. I'm never going to have a better moment uh, in my life. And very soon after, we were recruited to Woodstock.
0: Ladies and gentlemen, turn it up.
3: So we went on at dawn. Right. The last morning just before
1: Jimi So you're at Woodstock. You had never played to several hundred thousand people before. What what, what was the feeling like for you?
3: We were hams. We loved it. Uh, With these stoned hippies saying to themselves, Am I really seeing right. twelve guys, three of whom are in gold lame in front of me? Oh, it must be the bad acid, you know.
1: Right. And, and George, you're there as well. I mean, are you're, you're you're not a singer, right? But you're you were the impresario.
0: No, I didn't go. Oh, really? You missed it. I was on vacation in
3: Dubrovnik, Yugoslavia.
1: You missed Woodstock. <laughs> yeah.
3: He's one of the few people who doesn't
1: claim to have been there. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. I mean, so you look at the other acts at Woodstock, Jimmy. Country Joe, The Dead, mm-hmm. all the bands of that 60s moment. And then there's you playing the schmaltzy 50s cover set. Uh, you, you've only been a band for a few months. You haven't put out a record at all. Why were you at Woodstock?
3: Well, as somebody put it once, in a retrospective view of Woodstock, Shanana showed us where we had come from, and Jimmy showed us where we were going and you have to realize that all the, the big bands, like Jefferson Airplane and uh, Janice and, and everybody, they loved us. They, they loved that music. They right. loved the recapitulation. Because they had going, really like, grown
1: up on it because they're a exactly. bit older. Exactly,
3: that's yeah. right. And also, there were 12 of us in full costume doing very complicated choreography. This was entertainment. <laughs>
1: The set list from, you know, 50 years later looks so canonical about that late 50s, early 60s Thank music. I mean, yes. you know, At the Hop, house, Rock, Get a Job, Book of Love, Teen Angel, Wipeout. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, there was no internet then. There was no, like, rock and roll canon quite yet. So right. how, did you just luck into picking the right songs?
0: No, Kurt, because we brought them back... That created the canon.
1: Well, that's my question.
0: I remember the guys bringing to me a a record that finally somebody had found of Hound Dog, and everybody remembered it as, you know, ain't nothing but a hound dog. Actually, if you listen to it, it's you ain't nothing but a hound dog. And I said, don't do the way it really is. Do it the way everyone remembered it. So in general, we played everything twice as fast and twice as loud as anyone, That's as, interesting. A, as they had So even as been. you were
1: creating the canon, you were distorting it. Absolutely. The crazy thing, the thing that is so interesting to me about you at Woodstock is, you know, these songs, Duke of Earl, you play, seven years old you know none of these songs almost none of these songs are more than like 12 years old and yet the, everybody was struck by wow look at this crazy old fashioned retro thing some were 5 years old how how is that I mean, imagine! Wow, look at that band—they're playing music from 2012 or (laughs) 2005. Crazy! (laughs) That's unimaginable. That's right, right. absolutely. Right? Yeah, you're right. You're right. Um, Absolutely right. That something seems so nostalgic so quickly. What was what was that about the '60s that made that happen?
3: Well, one thing was the change from one generation to another, and the polarizing aspect of. You have to remember, and I'm sure you do, we are right in the middle of the, the worst war that we can think of. Right.
0: Kurt, everybody you see at Woodstock is waiting to be drafted for Vietnam.
3: That was that polarizing thing. There was an articulation point there that we passed.
1: You no, know, and this to me is, is such a palpable demonstration of it. There is suddenly the musical Greece, American Graffiti, Happy Days, all, you know, in the next five years after Seananah comes to exist – Shana Na was in the film Greece, Greece movie, as yeah. characters. Yep. So this turn into specifically late 50s nostalgia in American Graffiti and Greece and all the rest, but in general nostalgia, I mean, it, it, it seems to me Shana Na, Woodstock is the hinge moment for all yeah. of that. Yeah, well, that's very true.
0: It was a new idea of the 1950s as this pre-political teenage Eden. It's very clear that these 50s had never existed, that I'd, I made them up. It hadn't been anything like that. The beatnik was the image of the 50s. Right. And we replaced that with the greaser. Right. It was this harmless, but it's completely invented. That's the
1: miracle. And I guess, you know, to the degree this nostalgia mania started, it was that, right? It was this respite from, oh, my gosh, the crazy late 60s. I think
3: that's one reason that it was so successful. I don't know how many people cognitively <laughs> said to themselves, oh, what a nice respite. Right. They were enjoying themselves.
1: Right. I want to look at another uh, early Na live performance from the Fillmore East in the East Village uh, in 1970. It's an instrumental of uh, The Ventures' Walk, Don't Run. Right. It's it's a really ferocious performance. The the band dressed as greasers are writhing on the ground, jumping into the crowd.
0: My direction to them was pretend that you're three kids up in a bedroom with guitars, facing each other, just trying to make as much noise as possible. It's being played twice as fast as the original. Well,
1: and I look at this, I say, oh, guys in leather jackets playing real high energy old rock too fast. I th- I think, oh, it's the Ramones. Oh, you're <laughs> inventing punk. And I'm serious.
3: No, we know, we know. What Johnny Rotten said. Oh, shana Na He says they are my favorite.
1: I'm telling you, you have a real argument to say you were, you were, you were an early punk band. I don't want to say that. They say they are a later Sha Na band.
0: Actually, we argue against them. They're always telling us that. Yeah. Why?
1: Oh, because you're too, you're, you're nice, and they're too nihilistic, or what?
3: No, that, that sounds like we knew they were
0: going to well, come along. No. Yeah. Nobody
1: knows anything. Artists <laughs> yeah. don't know anything.
3: That's my point. But we didn't set
1: out to do punk. I know you didn't set out, but here you are doing it.
5: We got just one thing to say to you fucking hippies. <laughs> and that is the rock and
1: roll is here to stay. So the 50s nostalgia wave continues and grows. In the 70s, sha Continues and, and starting in 1977, there was a national Sha Na TV variety show that lasted four seasons. But Rob, you were you were gone, right by then? Oh yeah, yeah,
3: yeah. My day job was as a rock and roll star, but I always aspired to be a linguist.
1: And you became a, a linguist and and kind of created a field all your own, right? Forensics.
3: I use the science of linguistics to help elucidate matters of the law. So uh, who wrote a ransom note or assessing threats to the White House? some I've worked for the FBI and British intelligence. Uh,
1: Really? So it's in the age of DNA, the way that people form sentences actually has identifiable meanings? uh, Absolutely.
3: I'm really proud that I... Started an Innocence Project at Hofstra University, where I'm teaching.
1: Uh, George, you you too uh, went on to become a distinguished professor, right?
0: I was assistant professor of English at Yale, and now I'm professor of interdisciplinary humanities at San Francisco State, and all the courses are full. Don't even call. <laughs>
1: George Leonard, Rob Leonard, thank you very much. It has been my pleasure.
3: Yeah. Oh, thank you so much. Thanks. It's been great talking
1: to you. And here's an astonishing fact. In addition to the Leonard brothers, the members of Shanana went on to become a law professor, a surgeon, a class action litigator, a professor of literature, an emergency room physician, an entertainment lawyer and Green Day's manager, and the provost of the Jewish Theological Seminary. Shanana, featuring some of the original members, is on tour now. Coming up, the act that immediately followed Shauna Na on stage at Woodstock Jimi Hendrix's performance of the national anthem. That's next on Studio 360.
6: 360.
1: When you think about the Woodstock Festival, there are really only a few pieces of music out of the three long days that quickly come to mind. At least to my mind. One is Country Joe and the Fish. And, and it's, it's one, one, two, two, three, one
7: two, two, three, what are we, we fighting, fighting for? Don't ask me, I don't give a damn. The next stop is Vietnam.
1: Which is a totally on-the-nose, in-your-face, late-60s artifact, but is now one tiny beat in countercultural history by a band not really known for anything else. And then there's this. Jimi Hendrix's intense, distorted guitar version of the Star-Spangled Banner. Fifty years later, that performance still seems artful and meaningful, still resonates. For our American Icon series, David Krasnow tries to figure out why.
6: Michael William Doyle was too young to attend Woodstock, but he's been thinking about it ever since. He teaches courses on the 1960s at Ball State University in Indiana.
9: My brother was a uh, DJ for an AM radio station in Winona, Minnesota in 69 and '70 and they signed off their station every night uh, with the Star Spangled Banner. And uh, one night I was in there with some friends and I said to him, you know, it's time to close out. I said, hey, I got an idea. Why don't you play Hendrix's version of the Star Spangled Banner and and just see what happens? So he was game for it. This is at uh, midnight, but small town in Minnesota, 1970. And within minutes, the station manager who was awakened from sleep called my brother and told him uh, that he uh, was going to face firing over this, that his phone had been ringing off the hook with people who were calling to complain that he had played that version. Probably most of the people that were calling to complain had never heard that song before, doubtful that they'd ever heard of Jimi Hendrix. But they knew when they heard that song that there had been uh, a rupture in something that was considered to them to be sacred.
4: It's already, like, oozing with chaos because the notes are bending and they're threatening to go somewhere else. He's letting them swell.
6: That's Tara Key. She's the guitarist who leads the band Antietam.
4: And it's like already like starting to dive bomb. He's holding the pressure points of the buttons of everybody gets pushed when they're listening at the sports event and it actually means something to them.
10: To find the blues in it, to pull the blues out of it, and that's one of the things that Jimmy did.
6: Vernon Reed, he's best known for the band Living Color.
10: On on a level, he brought the mortar fire to the mix.
4: I think he was just like really so key in making his guitar not sound like a guitar, making it be a conduit for... A million other sounds, and I think he really more than anybody like kind of brought that right in the front door.
10: And for people that heard it, it was for some people it was it was this awesome bit of truth telling, and for other people it was this, this confrontational critique. You know, Jimi Hendrix is almost like a representative of everything that the establishment was afraid of.
11: Yeah, absolutely.
10: He was kind of sexually dynamic African American male playing very very loud rock and roll guitar. He's the kind of person that I think the the, main, the mainstream America of that time was afraid that their daughters were going to go home with.
7: Baby.
10: You know, dad I want you to meet someone. He plays guitar.
11: <laughs> Yikes. <laughs> this man was in the
3: 101st Airborne, so when you write your nasty letters in... Talk. Nasty letters? Wow. Right. You really well, people, when you mention the national anthem and uh, talk about playing it in any unorthodox way, you immediately get a guaranteed percentage of hate mail from
0: people well, who say, how that's dare That's not unorthodox. Anyone. That's not unorthodox. It isn't unorthodox? No, no. I thought
10: it was beautiful.
0: Yeah. But then there you go. Yeah. Yeah.
10: Yeah. And it was interesting to see him on the Dick Cavett show. And Dick Cavett was asking him about it. And Jimmy, I think, genuinely was like, what? I mean, his thing was all, I'm an American.
11: I don't know. Yeah. All I did was play it. I'm American, so I played it. I used to have sing
2: singing in school. They made me sing in a school so It was a flashback, you
6: know. I don't know you bought it. Do you think that was genuine? Because it's, it's hard to tell looking at him. There was he messing with Dick Cavett, or I think
1: he was
10: messing. I think a lot in, in in that interview he messes with Dick Cavett. But I don't think when he refers to the Star Spangled Banner, his performance of it, um, when he says, "Well, I, I thought it was beautiful," I don't think he's being disingenuous. He was sincerely in the moment that he was in.
2: I think there was an assumption that young guy coming up, part of this generation, you know, we all think alike. Well, he didn't. Ruben Jackson is a music scholar who's
6: written a lot about Jimi Hendrix.
12: There
2: are instances in which Hendrix said, well, he was, he was in favor of the war because he made some reference in an interview to the, to the domino theory. Uh, you know, and that, well, if, if we don't stop the communists, you know, this will happen,
6: this will happen, and this will happen. The domino theory was pretty much what LBJ thought, too. If we don't stop the communists here, where will we stop them? Unlike most of the flower children at Woodstock, Jimmy had already been in the armed forces. He was discharged honorably, although sleeping with his guitar was not considered really good soldiering. He actually played with one of his army buddies, Billy Cox, at Woodstock. Jimmy, at least, did not think his anthem was unpatriotic. Here's Michael Doyle, the historian. He was asked about
9: that uh, shortly after the festival, and uh, this is his cryptic response. Nowadays, we don't play it to take away all the greatness that America is supposed to have. We play it the way the air is in America today. The air is slightly static.
10: It's like the Zeitgeist had vomited up this moment, this thing, but it was also the soundtrack of a country tearing itself apart in the real time.
4: They're feeling
10: in
9: this group that there should be a strike on this campus.
10: Yeah! The sound of demonstrations and people's neck veins sticking out and people screaming at each other from across the
9: ideological divide. That phrase that they used to bring the war home is exactly what you could say Hendricks was doing in the Star Spangled Banner performance.
6: So was Jimmy just reflecting the times, playing that static in the air? On the one hand, he wasn't known for making political statements. On the left, he was actually thought of as kind of a lightweight. A critic once called him a psychedelic Uncle Tom. But on the other hand, in The Star-Spangled Banner, it really sounds like Jimi Hendrix has got something to get off his chest. I remember after Hendrix died, there was a
2: an old bit in Rolling Stone, and the writer referred to that, the performance of the Star Spangled Banner, and he said when he got to the phrase, the land of the free, that sustained note was like a scream of black rage. And I thought, wow. You could certainly have interpreted it that way, but that rage was everywhere. Again, Reuben Jackson. Could you see it as a a blues, you know, a, a lament, uh, a question, uh, a searing series of questions? I, I would say yes. I'm not talking in terms of scales necessarily, pentatonic scales or flatted thirds, etc. But I would say it was a blues in the broadest, you know, emotional, poetic, thematic sense. The blues as as conduit for whatever is happening, you know, whether it's you know on a more personal level, your baby left you, or your blues for or about a country which is going through some, you know, issues, as they say in therapy.
6: America in the 60s definitely had issues. But Michael Doyle takes it much farther back, all the way to the beginning of American history. He compares Jimmy's anthem to a sermon, a kind of diatribe that Puritan ministers used to deliver, something called a Jeremiad. The Jeremiah sermon, uh,
9: based on uh, the prophet Jeremiah, calls people to task for their failings.
6: And this was never really something you wanted to hear.
9: And there's always this vague threat that if they fail to restore the fervor, the commitment uh, to these larger principles they believe is God-given, that catastrophe awaits them. And I feel that uh, you could say that uh, Hendrix's plane of the star-spangled banner is the oral equivalent of a Jeremiah for 1969 in America.
10: You know, when you get to the Rockets' red glare, I mean, he's, like, setting the Rockets off. When Francis Scott Key came up with the words, I mean, he was in a stockade, and there was, like, a mortar attack, and he literally saw this battle. And that's the thing about the Star-Spangled Banner, is that we, we divorce it from the actual event that it describes.
6: And that's the thing. When we sing the national anthem, we tend to forget. It's not about baseball or parades or spacious skies or amber waves of grain either. The song is about war, a forgotten war. But still, this country was born in war, and we've been fighting wars ever since. And Jimi Hendrix's Star-Spangled Banner doesn't let you forget that.
2: I think you can be, quote, patriotic and, and acknowledge the degree of violence that, well, this country was founded, in my opinion, of violence with you know the Native Americans, et cetera. And, and I think it's, it's saying, well, this is our song, and America is like a house with many rooms, and some of the rooms have some blood on the wall.
6: I asked Tara Key, the guitarist from Antietam, to take Jimmy's Star-Spangled Banner and make her own version of it for the times that we're living in right now. You can hear in her version that America holds a very different place in the world, not so much the colossal superpower, more vulnerable and struggling to meet the challenges in front of us.
4: I mean, everybody wants to make it work, but it's just like the way is hard to find a unity about now. So. I'm just thinking this time you go inside and you find the way to give your best from internally. You have to start from within now to find a way to be a good citizen and to help make it work.
6: Instead of a scream of rage against America, what Tara played sounds a little like an elegy. Melancholy, but loving. And I think a little bit hopeful.
1: That's David Krasnow, who produced our story in 2010 when he was Studio 360's senior editor. We have since donated David to the New Yorker Radio Hour, where he is executive producer. Coming up next,
7: the butcher, the banker, the drummer, and then...
1: Sly and the Family Stone's album "Stand." That's next on Studio 360. Ah, Studio 360. At 3.30 a.m. at the end of day two of the Woodstock Festival, Saturday night, Sunday morning, it's safe to assume most of the half million people in that audience were high on something. And then, Sly and the Family Stone appeared on stage singing higher. That and most of their Woodstock set list was from their hit album, Stand, which had come out three months earlier. It was this blend of soul and funk and psychedelia and sheer glee. The band was multiracial, included women and men, and was defined by that diversity, which was unusual then. Stand includes some of Sly Stone's most enduring and political songs, some of which have provocative lyrics. So if you're listening with, I don't know, your Cub Scout pack, heads up. To tell the story of this great album, we have assembled the band's guitarist. My name is Frederick Stewart.
5: I am Sly Sylvester Stewart's only brother. Sly Stone's biographer. My name is Jeff Kalis, and I'm the author of I Want to Take You Higher, The Life and Times of Sly and the Family Stone.
7: And a bona fide funk legend. My name is George Clinton, parliament, funkadelic. Sometimes known as P Funk All Stars.
11: Stand in the end, you still be you. One that's done all the things you set out to do. Stand, there's a cross for you to bear. Things to go if you're going in.
7: I had messages in everything he
5: said when he said stand it was demanding it mean get up the song stand really is putting you in a position of standing up for what you believe in standing up for your joy this was like a civil rights anthem made rock friendly
7: When Stan came out, everybody was looking to be free. Black women, gay. There was a whole lot of freedom being fought for at that time.
4: Sing a simple song! Yeah, yeah,
7: yeah, 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 yeah. Sly was able to be very artsy-fartsy with this stuff. In that funk, simple groove, he was able to create standards and still be funky. I mean, simple song was the epitome of funk songs, and it was a pretty pop
8: message.
11: My mom and my dad taught us right from wrong, never looked at black and white. You know, we just went to school. On the weekends, we went to the parks. It's sort of like we all of us we played together. <laughs> you know, all the colors of the rainbow. It wasn't until I was in the twelfth grade that I ever seen a race
4: riot.
11: So the songs I think helped people see what we saw and how we lived and how things could be.
4: Well, I was down the
7: Slash blackness was intact with his music. He, his social awareness was from a street point of view but highly intellectual. He had messages social, political, ...and in Straight Street.
1: Hey, hey, hey. Beat is getting Music getting
5: I Want to Take You Higher has so much in it... ...has very much a feeling of sharing... Everybody gets to sing. Every one of the individual instruments gets its own thing. How many rock and roll songs can anybody name where that goes on? When he got
7: to Woodstock, the fringes flying in the air, Take You Higher was like what Woodstock was all about. It was the epitome of that rock era. That was the top of the mountain.
11: Woodstock was was absolutely phenomenal.
5: I think it was a special realization for Sly and the band when they came on in the middle of the night and saw themselves waking up fields full of thousands and thousands of hippies and saw this reflection back of these happy faces. You know, they recognized their power.
11: If people knew my brother the way i know him, he's probably the least confident of the whole band. He's probably the one that needs the biggest great job, man, because he is so critical of his own material. Sometimes You know sometimes I'm right and I can't be wrong I mean everyone can relate to songs that are on here I personally I'm forever grateful
7: Sly Stone represent everything that I love about music and writing music and singing music Sly Stone that's my man
1: That was George Clinton. You also heard from Freddie Stone and Jeff Kalis all talking about the 1969 album Stand by Sly and the Family Stone. Our story was produced by Devin Strolovich for BMP Audio. And by the way, Sly Stone is still around, age 76. Woodstock was a life-changing experience for a lot of people. But next, we have the story of a mother and daughter whose lives were changed by a different Woodstock. (laughs) The little yellow bird who was Snoopy's sidekick.
12: Little birdie!
1: That bird had been appearing in Charles Schultz's comic strip Peanuts since the mid-60s, but never had a name until 1970, just after the concert film came out, when Charles Schultz decided to start calling his bird... Woodstock. Geraldine Dupuis discovered Peanuts as a kid growing up in Panama.
8: Well, I was born in Panama, Panama City. I'm an only child and my mother was a fanatic and so she would litter my room with all of the memorabilia.
12: Here I am. I'm Victoria Depuis. I'm Geraldine's mother. We have been uh, fans of Snoopy for a very long time. When I was, I think, 14, going to 15, the new girl came to our class. This girl called Alice, she came from a home in the Canal Zone. That was a territory that belonged to the Americans. And she was the cutest person because she didn't have many words. But when she smiled or she laughed, it was like the sun coming out. One day she gave me one Snoopy book, one Charlie Brown Snoopy book. Just like that, she gave it to me. And I remember, I mean, I was so, so. How do you say, I enjoyed so much. It made me really, really laugh loud. I was hooked. So when Jolene was born, of course, you know, I would buy everything for her, all the pajamas, all the teachers, the the lunchbox. She was bombarded with the old Snoopy things because I was such a fanatic and I wanted her to appreciate it. And then I think her first words were Snoopy. She's, I think she's
8: like embellishing a little bit, I'm quite sure. She told me that my first word was agua, which is water in, in uh, Spanish, but I'll accept that. I definitely sort of recall like going through my mother's old copies, the really battered, dog-eared copies that she had.
12: And through, the, through Snoopy we learn lots more about American life. You know, the holidays, the Halloween, and the great pumpkin, and Thanksgiving, and uh, of course, Christmas.
8: The idea of having a fall where the leaves fell at such a capacity that you had to rake them, and the idea of there being a winter where there was snow is just inconceivable. Because Panama, being so close to the equator, is just constantly on the same sort of level. You know the
12: the snow when they had and the skating. You know when they were in ice skating. Oh, ice skating on a lake.
8: We moved from Panama City to uh, London and the UK because my father was transferred there. Like, he was, he's a lawyer, so he was sent over there to open an office.
12: Then I said, my God, I, I have the opportunity to go to London and then uh, to learn English. And also, I thought of Geraldine, that, you know, what an opportunity for her. Hey Chuck, how about this? We're in England. Did you ever think you'd
4: be in England, Chuck?
8: But to be sort of suddenly thrust into school in a new language, it was just, I do remember being kind of generally isolated the first few years that we were there. And also the presence of Snoopy sort of being a constant in a just sort of being in the background.
12: And also the English are, you know, they are very good people, but they are very um, distant, you know, a bit on the cold side. And sometimes we couldn't find Snoopy books, the new ones, in the UK. We would basically have
8: to resort to the layover in Miami when we would fly back to Panama,
12: We had to go to the bookshop to get books for her to read in the plane because if she didn't have a book, she would be miserable.
8: We would stop after going through transit, go to the mall, get in a cab, and like tear through Walden books and sort of buy up every Snoopy anthology that we could possibly find.
12: I mean, it was a very happy moment, running, you know, in between flights.
8: We would just make a beeline to Walden Books. That was my priority. And then um, the food court where we would have a corn dog. Well, that's what I would have.
12: I'm telling you that even now that, you know, the other day, I took a, a Snoopy book and, you know, I opened it. And then the first thing, you know, the second page, I was laughing already. And
8: Woodstock, you know, Woodstock's just hilarious. He's like the straight man. hes I I can definitely see how Snoopy and Woodstock uh, would be a stand-in for my mother and myself. Because they were
12: very happy together. They they shared everything. And uh, Snoopy was like the guide for Woodstock.
8: Of course she would take Snoopy for herself. Yes. (laughs) No, definitely. When you move somewhere with somebody... And there's nobody else around. You know, if my dad's working, it's just my mother and I. When I was little, in a country where she was learning the language, the, the relationship transcends that of mother and daughter. It really becomes one of companion. And I think in many ways, Snoopy and Woodstock are sort of those companions to each other.
12: When she left home to go to university, I always tell my friends that it was like she flew away.
8: This probably epitomizes my relationship with my mother. Snoopy receives another letter from Woodstock, and he says, Ah, another letter from Woodstock, who's at Eagle Camp. Dear friend of friends, today we heard a special lecture by a caterpillar who had crawled all the way across a freeway without getting run over. It was a very exciting adventure. He had all of us sitting on the edge of our branches. Ha ha. And Snoopy looks up, he's like, that Woodstock. <laughs> just hit The face is cracking a little smile, and I can just imagine my mother receiving a letter like this, or an email like this from me at college and just being like, oh,
4: that (laughs) Jerry.
12: Exactly. (laughs) She is Woodstock. (laughs) Yeah.
1: Eric John produced our story in 2007. Is there some cartoon or symphony or building or short story or whatever that changed your life like that? Tell us about it at incoming at studio360.org and we might put your story on the show. And for this week's show, we are done. Studio 360 is a production of PRI in association with Slate. The production team
6: is Jocelyn Gonzalez Andrew Adam Newman Sandra Lopez-Monsalve Evan Chung Lauren Hansen. Sam Kim Zoe Saunders Tommy Bazarian Morgan Flannery
1: And I'm Kurt Anderson. You know who you are, Grease Bull.
6: By the
11: time we got to Woodstock.
1: Thanks very much for listening. Peace out. PRI, Public Radio
8: International. The album itself was so different to anything that had come out before.
1: Next time on Studio 360, the Portishead album, Dummy. 25 years later, still surprising.
4: It's not cute. It's intelligent. It's experimental. It's emotional.
1: What was and still is so smart about Dummy? Next time on Studio 360.